Hello, and welcome back to Japan Memo, the IISS Japan Chair Program podcast, where we're joined by experts, strategists, and practitioners to unpack why Japan matters in today's regional and global geopolitical landscape. I'm Robert Ward, the IISS Japan Chair and Director of Geoeconomics and Strategy. And I'm Yuka Koshino, Research Fellow for Security and Technology Policy. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Valerie Nike from the Foundation for Strategic Research in France. Valerie is a senior research fellow focusing on the Indo Pacific, geostrategy, crises and conflicts, and defense policies at the FRS. She's also currently a senior research fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs, JIA, in Tokyo. Valerie has extensive experience in academia, think tanks, and government, researching defense, security, geopolitics, and strategy in the Indo Pacific having previously served as director of the Asia programs of the French Institute for International Relations, IFRI, and the Institute for International Relations and Strategy, the IRIS, and having led the Northeast Asia Observatory in coordination with the French Department for Strategic Affairs. Valerie has also authored numerous books and articles on the Indo-Pacific, most recently Japan in 100 Questions, a model in decline, published in 2020 by Talandier, and Chinese Power in 100 Questions, published by Talandier in 2017. Valerie is joining us from Tokyo, where she currently lives. On top of her research, Valerie also spends time sketching with Japan her current landscape. And Valerie, in front of me now in my computer, I have some of four of your beautiful sketches on Nozawa Onsen. Absolutely delightful and have been a delight throughout the last couple of years of lockdown. So personal thanks from me for your beautiful artwork. Thank you. There's a a huge degree of mutual cultural respect and admiration between France and Japan. Each country has pretty impressive soft power and so on. Why do you think this mutual admiration, where do you think it comes from? I think it's it's very interesting. Already my parents, I, I was raised on a Japanese movie when I was quite young because it was a done thing for some intellectuals in France in the 60s to go and admire Japanese culture very much. So this is pretty much there. Also, uh, one must not forget that France is the first, I think, consumer of mangas in Europe, at least. I mean, the production edition of mangas and Japanese, and this is a very big thing for the young people in France. A lot of them are studying Japanese in France because they read manga and they have that dreamlike perception of Japan. And this is true on the other side. I mean, a lot of Japanese still have that romantic vision of France, you know, food, la mode, as we say in French, and a dream of traveling to Paris. I hope they are not too disappointed when they arrive, but uh, this is a kind of mixture of cross-fascination with something that maybe does not always exist, but makes people dream. Japanese movies. I mean, we all love Japanese movies on this podcast. I have to ask, what's your favourite? I really loved Ozu movies. You know, it's uh, old movies, but still they are fascinating. And while I am in Tokyo, I very often look at on internet for old Japanese movies, and you have a huge collection of uh, movies that you we never saw actually in Europe. There are a lot of comedies too, not only dramas, you know, are very highbrow intellectual movies, a lot of Japanese comedies. Maybe it would be nice for Japan to export also these comedies because it gives another side of Japan that is very true also. Oh, absolutely magnificent, all his work. 
there's a lot going on in the world uh, at the moment, obviously, and, and France is under Macron has, has been trying to, to take a leading role to have some influence. Um, how do you think that, that France is positioning itself uh, within the global uh, geopolitical landscape at the moment? As you mentioned, Macron now is at the head of the European Union. It doesn't mean a lot, uh, actually, because he's not the only one to decide. But definitely, France is trying to play a significant role in power with its position in the world. I mean, we are middle power, but as people say, with global ambitions. I think it's the same with uh, the UK, by the way particularly now in Europe with what is going on in Ukraine. We see a lot of uh, diplomatic activities, and I think that is useful, and this is a role that France, Germany also can play in order to try to maintain some links between adversaries and uh, develop a position. Still, France sees itself as a significant power that has something to say in the world today. I'm sure we will speak about that Indo-Pacific concept, but definitely France is very much in there now. You mentioned in Indo-Pacific, and clearly there's a major overlap between French and Japanese objectives in the Indo-Pacific. How do you think these have evolved over the past, uh, say, decade or so? Because there's a lot more contact between France and Japan on, on security issues in the Indo-Pacific, for example. Let's mention China, the big elephant in the room. And definitely it is a, a major factor in the evolution of perceptions and policies, both on the side of France, but also on the side of Japan. And actually, France's perception of China has changed a lot, just like the perception of China at the EU level, European Union level, has changed a lot also in the last decade. Before, it was Asia was more or less equivalent to China, the leading emerging uh, actor in the region, perceived as an opportunity uh, that you had to cultivate uh, almost at all costs. But things have changed a lot because of China's attitude itself, much more aggressive, less reciprocity in terms of trade, a lot of disillusion regarding trade, for instance, at the French level, but also at the EU level. And of course, Japan is also facing tremendous challenges coming from China itself. So all this evolved into a willingness on the part of France and the European Union to enlarge their partnership in Asia, and particularly towards Japan. We share values, as the Japanese like to say, but this is very true, in terms of a common vision of a liberal world order. We share the same uneasiness regarding the role of China, uh, the necessity to maintain freedom of navigation. It's absolutely essential for Japan, but also for Europe and for France. All these things coming together explain why there is a much more important interest in in Japan, in France today, but it started, by the way, under President Hollande, when Japan became a partenariat d'exception, exceptional partnership, it, uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's the right uh, translation in English. Already at that time it began, I mean, the willingness on the part of France to focus much more, not only on China, but on other uh, important players in Asia, including Japan, but also India, of course, and others. Where do you see specific areas for cooperation in potentially economic security or, or traditional security, given what you just said about France's concerns about China? 
maritime security is a very important point. When President Macron visited Japan, we signed a kind of roadmap for cooperation on maritime security is really pretty much at the core of this cooperation in terms of security. And also because, as you know, France claims to be, but is objectively a Pacific power too because of these highlands we have in South Pacific and New Caledonia, especially after New Caledonia last referendum decided that they will stay in France, they will remain French. For Japan, it's also very important. And when I talk to people here, very often they remind us that we have interest in the Pacific. And uh, this is an important point for Japan to, to have a European power with direct national interest in the Pacific. So I think that beyond that, yes, maritime security is an important element of the cooperation between uh, France and uh, Japan. Of course, you have also a lot of other things like uh, the resilience of supply chain, cyberware, space is also very important these days. But uh, for France, yes, maritime security was a very important point with Japan. As you mentioned, France is a Pacific power. It has been very active about setting its Indo-Pacific strategy and also played a leading role in putting together the EU Indo-Pacific strategy. And it also has appetite for taking a multilateralist approach uh, to the regional security including maritime security that you mentioned. But we've also seen that last year, about six months ago, Australia's decision to scrap the submarine deal with the French defense company, and then also the announcement of this new uh, joint capabilities development pact uh, between Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, probably shocked our France and affected or triggered France to revisit its partners and its roles in the region. Given that it's been about six months since the AUKUS announcement has been made, how do you see France shifted its thinking on where it sits in the region's spaghetti bowl of minerals and multilateralism in the Indo-Pacific region? You mentioned spaghetti balls of, you know, multilateral format, and this is very true. I mean, France is very much attached to multilateralism, not only France, but I mean Japan too, and this is something we share with many partners in the region plus the EU. But there are so many competing formats. Maybe this is absolutely not, of course, an official position, but in my view, some competing format makes a global multilateralism for Asia much more difficult to apply, especially when you involve China. I mean, it's a little bit like at the UN with Russia today. If you have China, it makes things much more difficult. So we tend to focus more on smaller multilateral format. AUKUS is one of these new, smaller multilateral format. And you're right, I mean, France was shocked <laughs> by what happened with AUKUS. A few days ago, there was that Indo-Pacific Forum in Paris. Australia was deprived of its status of strategic partner of France. So this is, uh, uh, this is significant. But definitely, AUKUS happened, this is true, but it definitely doesn't mean that France is not interested anymore in uh, Indo-Pacific or in French Indo-Pacific strategy did not change because of AUKUS. Uh, we have other partners and of course it would be nice if uh, we could rebuild. I think it will be ex extremely important by the way that we build relationship with Australia particularly because we do cooperate a lot in the Pacific and we saw that recently with what happened in Tonga for instance where there is a cooperation between France and Japan 
Australia also, of course. So uh, this is very important. We have other partnership, uh, strategic partnership in the region. Of course, Japan is very important, but also India. Indonesia as one of the most important members of ASEAN. So, I mean, Indo-Pacific strategy of France did not change that much because of AUKUS. In my view, AUKUS was, when I say it's a mistake, it's just because I argued about it before, but instead of enlarging partnership of willing partners in the Indo-Pacific, facing a very, very tense uh, security situation in the region, again, because of China. I think it's always better to have more partners than less. I know what AUKUS is. It's very much focused on capacity building with the submarines and so on, and between three very close allies. But still, it might have been better to think of something that could have maintained the French on board meaning Europe on board, rather than restricting the membership to these three traditional allies between the UK, the US and Australia. But again, France and Europe, because when you speak of French Indo-Pacific strategy, this is very much embedded into the new EU Indo-Pacific strategy. So there is a, a kind of EU policy regarding the Indo-Pacific with a lot of overlapping, even if there are some differences, but still, basically, it's very close. I think there were also some discussions around whether this AUKUS announcement might have triggered uh, the potential to engage France in the quadrilateral security dialogue framework, partly to kind of amend the relationship with Australia, but also to make sure that France is also present in these new uh, developments. What do you think the possibility or potential for France to engage with unilaterals like the Quad? Already, there are cooperation between Quad and other partners, including France. We have a close relationship with India. We already have a lot of uh, exercises and uh, things like that with India, uh, as we have with Japan. Coordination with Quad is very important, and especially because the Quad agenda is quite broad now. It's not only maritime security, maritime safety. Uh, it's also related to vaccine policy uh, after COVID-19. All these elements make cooperation with Quad quite obvious for a country like France. But it depends also on how Quad sees itself and how it wants to enlarge. There are a lot of talks about, you know, exclusivity or inclusivity or Quad Plus. These questions are asked not only by France, but also by other countries in Asia, uh, particularly among the ASEAN countries. You mentioned China as the elephant in the room for the Indo-Pacific. Well, there's perhaps another elephant in the room, Russia, particularly after its invasion of Ukraine. Interested to hear your thoughts about what implications there may be for security in the Indo-Pacific as a result, sort of following on from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I know that there are some worries, and some did express these worries in Japan too, some experts, particularly in Japan, about what will become of uh, European engagement in the Indo-Pacific. Last year, we saw quite uh, an activity. I mean, of, of course, there were the, the UK uh, naval presence in the Indo-Pacific, but also France was uh, very much there, and uh, Germany, and it was a much, uh, first, sorry, a bust on the first, uh, uh, with Bayern being sent to the region, it was very important move to to demonstrate the willingness by EU countries and including Germany to play a role in the Indo-Pacific. But this is true that some people are wondering about what will become of engagement if Europe is completely focused on a war 
uh, in its own borders, very close, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, it will depend a lot on how the war evolves in Ukraine, of course, uh, what will happen, including what will become with Russia. It's very soon yet, and we don't know how these things will. We know that the Russians are facing a lot of difficulties. Uh, in Ukraine, but still, this is true that for the time being, the good point in a way is that Europe is becoming much more active in terms of defense on thinking strategically. Nobody is shocked anymore by uh, Europe and France talking about strategic autonomy, which was a, a bad word to say to some uh, sometimes. But, uh, you know, these things are quite good. I think it's very important that Europe realizes that uh, we need to think about uh, this things, but maybe uh, for some at least, uh, I think of Germany, for instance, it might mean refocusing again more, on, on not only Germany, but also other European members, like in Eastern Europe, of course, I mean, which is quite understandable. They were not the most favorable to Europe being too focused uh, in the Indo-Pacific, because for them, Russian threat was always at the forefront. This is a risk that uh, the European Union refocuses more on Europe rather than projecting to the Indo-Pacific. But I'm not sure it will uh, affect uh, France that much. I think we will go on with what we did before, sending missions every year to the region and uh, doing things in the Indian Ocean because we have also a very strong presence in the Indian Ocean. So I'm, I'm not sure it will affect France so much, but the question is definitely asked, as uh, it is for uh, the U.S. also, because some worry about you know the U.S. being too focused again in Europe and less uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So this is a question that should be discussed. You're sitting in, in Tokyo now, and I'm sure you've been looking at this this very closely with your gyre hat on. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really prompted a, a sea change in, in Japanese policy on all sorts of levels. But I'm particularly interested in how you think uh, Japan's policy towards Russia will evolve now. Um, under Abe, there was a lot of sort of balletic contortions of trying to sort of keep Russia on side because of the, the trying to solve the Northern Territories uh, issue. That now looks like there's been a big full stop put under that particular era. How do you see Japan trying to calibrate its Russia policy from now on? Up to the beginning of that war in Ukraine, a lot of people did, not only because of the Northern Territories uh, issue, but also because they believe, like some people in Europe maybe too, that it was better to try to do anything that could be done in order for Russia not to be too close to China. And uh, very often, Japanese experts used to say, you know, in Europe, you have Russia, and Russia is the main threat. But in Asia, we have uh, China, and we have to pay attention to that. And maybe it's better to try to divide China and Russia rather than to push uh, Russia too much into the arms of the Chinese. But now all this is gone. Obviously, as long as Putin will remain in power, and particularly if he wins what he wants to win, uh, whatever it is he wants to win, by the way, uh, in Ukraine or in Europe, you cannot have any kind of meaningful exchanges with Russia uh, for the time being. So 
it explains also why. I mean, Japan, yes, as you mentioned, uh, the policy changed a lot. I mean, sanctions, very strict sanctions, following fully what other European and uh, United States and the UK countries are doing vis-a-vis Russia. So this is a, a big move for, for Japan and very positive one in a way because uh, Japan is very important. And it's quite different from what was done in 2014 after Crimea or Donbass where, of course, there were some sanctions. Japan had um, much more, you know, focusing more on China, on uh, not willing to push too much Russia outside of any kind of potential negotiations or regaining some influence on Russia. But I think for the time being, definitely, uh, it's not possible anymore. But we will see what will become in Russia, you know, sometimes... uh, who can say <laughs> what will happen to Putin in a few months, even after Ukraine. So things can change a lot. The free and open Indo-Pacific concept, articulated first by Prime Minister Abe, Foyt stretches over a huge area, but sort of stops at East Africa just before the Gulf. But Japan's been very active within Africa in terms of providing uh, development assistance and so on. And of course, France has, has long been active in Africa in all sorts of dimensions. Do you see scope for Japan and France aligning a bit more on their work in Africa, particularly given the geostrategic importance of the region? And do you see any scope for FOIP to be sort of stretched a bit more to the West? I'm not so sure about stretching FOIP uh, from the Japanese point of view. Definitely, Africa is one of the elements of uh, cooperation on exchanges, very rich exchanges between France, Japan, and also the EU and Japan. France, as you know, we are facing difficulties in Africa, particularly in uh, with the Barkhan mission and the role of Russia too in, uh, in Africa with the Wagner troops. There is comp- complementarity between France, Europe and uh, and Japan on what uh, we can do uh, in Africa and particularly around the concept of quality infrastructure of durability where Japan is helping to build more resilient societies putting the stress on better governance quality infrastructure transparency, no corruption, all this is essential to build more, again, resilient society and maybe more stable societies in Africa. And definitely it's it's an important element to uh, complement what uh, France has been doing in terms of fighting terrorism and uh, trying to maintain a kind of, with a lot of difficulties, of course, of military action. It doesn't mean that France has no role in terms of building uh, also in terms of building more resilient society but I think that the role of Japan in that sense is extremely important in Africa plus we had with uh, this cooperation and still have this cooperation between the Atalante mission and the European Atalante mission against piracy and Japan has been uh, also uh, participating to it so in terms of stabilization again what can what Japan do in its own field and what we do at the European level and French level, uh, there is a very important complementarity between the two, I think. 
Thank you. So we talked a lot about potentials for Franco-Japanese cooperation in the Indo-Pacific or in Europe, given the situation um, in Ukraine and then in Africa right now and the maritime space as well. But we haven't talked about uh, the new domains like the space and cyber. We've seen several dialogues that are in place between France and Japan in these new areas as both of the technology powers. Where do you see opportunities for cooperation in these spaces? There is also a lot of exchanges and cooperation in space, not only cyberspace. These elements are all essential to global security. Japan, France, and both global threats, but also we need to deal with these things globally at the global level between like-minded partners, as I said before. So sharing information is extremely important. Good practice. Japan has its own initiatives concerning cyberspace, access to information, but also protection of information. So I think we need to exchange much more But this is already done between France, EU. This is very much part of the EU Indo-Pacific strategy too. Japan is completely integrated into these debates and possibility to to do more on these issues. You mentioned about strategic autonomy in defense. It's quite interesting to see the developments of strategic autonomy in digital space or digital sovereignty in the EU context. And I think, um, Valerie, when we met at previous discussions, we were discussing about challenges that Europe is facing in terms of deploying secure 5G and how to deal with Chinese 5G. And uh, in the Indo-Pacific region, for instance, US and Japan has tried to come up with alternative technologies like the Open RAN, where you disaggregate the different components of networks to, to allow multi-vendors. But this has a strong US component and US technology to it. And there's this tendency that we see in discussions in France and in Europe for not trying to develop their own technology, which could take some more time for 5G deployment. How do you see that idea or maybe pushing too much of the strategic autonomy concept by France and you might challenge digital infrastructure technology cooperation in the Indo-Pacific with Japan? I'm not really a specialist of these issues, so especially the technical side. What I can say is that European and French position regarding 5G, and particularly cooperation with the Chinese company uh, Huawei, has changed a lot in the recent years. We are much more cautious about it. Even if UK banned, I think, Huawei uh, from uh, infrastructure, but uh, it was not directly the case of in France, but almost. I mean, the conditions are so strict that it almost close market to Chinese companies. To my mind, it's a, it's a first important step. This is also true that uh, Europe wants to maintain a kind of a strategic autonomy or autonomous capacity in these fields. It will take time to rebuild. It's the same problem with supply chains, by the way, where we are trying to rebuild more resilient supply chains on crit- critical material. I'm thinking, of course, like everybody else of uh, semiconductor. I think it must be understood also why Europe wants to have some kind of autonomy. I don't think that Europe wants not to cooperate with Japan or with the US. Definitely, it wants to keep a margin of autonomy on these issues. This now brings us to our two Japan memo questions, which we uh, ask all our guests and always get some fascinating answers. Always look forward to this particular bit of the podcast. And the first of the two questions we ask is, do you have any book recommendations for listeners who wish to understand Japan? And by all means, you are entirely at liberty to recommend your own books if, if you so choose. 
my book on Japan, but uh, it was a, a short introduction, but it's in French, so I'm afraid it will not be that uh, easy to read. We are not in the 18th, 18th century anymore where French was <laughs> common lingua. But I recommend another one. It's just out, I think, by Michael Reed called Line of Advantage. It's about Abbey strategy, and it was a very important time in terms of change in strategic thinking in Japan. And it has huge consequences today. And so I recommend that book. I'm assuming many of our listeners will speak French. So just for their sake, could you could you give us the, the title of your book in French? It's a book you mentioned initially. It's Le Japon en sans question, une puissance en déclin, point d'interrogation, question mark, very important. So. And for listeners who haven't yet, we actually had Michael Green for our first episode for this uh, year on US-Japan Alliance. Please listen to that as well. So the second Japan memo question would be, what do you think people often get wrong about Japan? I don't want it to be taken as a criticism of Japan, but still, when living in Japan, what I discovered is that Japan is maybe not as technically savvy as some people might think outside of Japan. We think of Japan as an ultra-modern, extremely hyper-technologic uh, country. Actually, it's not the case. So it means that you sometimes need time to do things and you need a lot of consensus building, you know, old way of doing things. It means that some expectations from outside that might be met with, you need some delay. Uh, I mean, you cannot push Japan into, uh, actually, Japan reacted very quickly after Ukraine, but usually it takes some time to, to build a kind of consensus. There was this debate during the COVID crisis about stamps. You know, in Japan, you, do, you still use stamps a lot. The lobby of stamps, traditional stamp makers is very strong, so you still use stamps and facts. <laughs> but yeah, it's just more like a joke than a reality. I mean, Japan moves, but uh, from outside, in terms of political decision-making, sometimes it takes time, yes. I guess it's a uh, two episodes in a row that Japan is not a technology savvy country has been mentioned. So we might need a topic on that in the future. And just to bring the conversation full circle with Japanese movies, Valerie, you mentioned Ozu and just triggered my memory of, of Tokyo Story, Tokyo Monogatari, which I think is one of the greatest films ever made by anyone anywhere on the planet. Absolutely, yes. Japan is still very much uh, fascinating, interesting and uh, moving forward country to. Thank you, Valerie. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of Japan Memo. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Japan Memo on the podcast platform of your choice. For more insightful analysis, I also encourage you to look at past research by the Japan Chair Programme and by the broader IISS on our website. We also hope to connect with you on Twitter, where we are actively sharing the latest news and analysis on everything Japanese geopolitics and more. You can find us at, at Robert Allen Ward, at Yuka Koshino, or our guest at at v. Thank you again and see you next time.